0: Welcome back to another episode of Vertical Momentum. This is part two with Army veteran Brendan Mahaney, a great friend of mine. Um, and I hate saying uh, won the Purple Heart, but he is a Purple Heart recipient. So, and a true gentleman and a great friend, and somebody that I call brother. So, brother, uh, we're getting back to it. So, tell us when loading up on the plane and tell us when you first step off of that plane.
1: Yes, sir. Uh, so I will, uh, say we left Shelby in, uh, nice accommodations. There was a, uh, chartered 747, I believe, uh, all our own. And, uh, we got to fly north, uh, out of Bangor before heading east, uh, Toward Europe. And uh, just so happens, I was able to pull some strings. Found out that, uh, you know, we were going to be late, you know, stopping in Bangor for fuel up before the flight across the Atlantic. And uh, so I kind of might have let my people know that we were coming. Uh, my dad was a, a greeter at the airport anyway, uh, a veteran greeter. And uh, so he called all his boys and uh, my family showed up with uh, gifts and hugs. And, you know, we had a couple hours in Maine, uh, the coldest night in recorded history, I think. Um, But I got I was so fortunate that I had the chance to to see my family one last time before I went, you know, Uh, and that's something that I will never forget.
0: And there were some people, and we're going to talk about um, Superman later, but there were some people that didn't make it home again. So um, it's important for people to understand that um, love your family. You know, every moment is special, no matter where you are, whether you're in war or whether you're home, just, you know, appreciate your family because you never know when you're going to see them again. I no, just wanted to put that in there. Sorry.
1: No, a hundred percent that is a hundred percent every day. Never leave anything on the table. Always make sure everyone knows how you feel exactly about them because you never know what'll happen. That's exactly right. And uh you know, Superman was fortunate enough to to meet my family as well. uh my my baby cousin picked up a lot of pen pals. Uh, wink wink nudge nudge not saying anything guys but i mean come on she was like 18 but <laughs> i guess she was legal whatever it's my cousin uh so we we flew out of bangor and uh went uh straight to germany and That's another fun story in itself. They had a hurricane storm of the century and we ended up being grounded for two weeks in Germany. Um, And, uh, you know, the first thing they tell you when you get ready to deploy is is General Order One Alpha and General Order One Alpha is, uh, you know, that there's no porn, there's no drinking and there's no sex with anyone who is not your spouse while you're deployed.
0: Uh, No, Jody or no. What's that? Does that include Jody or no?
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, unfortunately, Jody does not fall under general orders, So, you know,
0: and we're not talking about Jody Stubbs. Okay. So,
1: (laughs) yeah, 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 make that clear. Uh, So, but here's the thing. I mean, when you take guys that have been uh, training hardcore, knowing that they're going to combat for three months, and uh yeah you let them loose on the streets of frankfurt for two weeks um let's just say there was a lot of shenanigans and we had quite the send-off uh in in germany uh before landing in uh uh kyrgyzstan uh which was another unworldly climate uh and uh you know, we were stuck in Kyrgyzstan for uh, about a week uh, while they were getting our stuff together. Uh, Crash broke his arm the first day we were there. Uh, first casualty of the deployment. Crash was walking to the showers in his flip flops in Kyrgyzstan, where it's three feet of snow and seven inches of ice. And he slipped and broke his arm before we even got in country. Um, and uh but uh you know we got now, all these pre-
0: people we're talking about once it's released, we got to start we got to tag them all just so they know that they're famous now
1: it, exactly or and in- I'll, I'll, i'm going to try to use nicknames as much as possible and uh the names of the guilty will be changed to protect the innocent you know <laughs> maybe but uh <laughs> go ahead
0: you, uh, you know
1: it, we had a good we had a good send off and uh we landed we came into uh kia which is kabul international airport and that was when we had our very first uh experience with um you know you're you're now in a combat zone you know uh we uh were loaded by the time we left Kyrgyzstan, there was no more chartered 747s. We're, we're sleeping on top of ammo crates in the back of C-17s, um, strapped into to seating pallets that were strapped to the floor. Um, you know, and, uh, so you come off the plane, you kind of stretch out a little bit and then it's like, all right, jump on the back of the five ton. We're, we're taking you to camp Phoenix. And, so you know everyone gets to the back of the the five tons and everyone gets a mag and uh you know they say you know don't don't shoot anything unless you got to and uh you you get to drive from Kabul international airport to uh camp phoenix which is about 10 15 minute drive depending on on who's convoying and uh you know, and then you get to Camp Phoenix, and that's generally where everybody in processes in country.
0: Okay, was uh, question ask because, like I said, you know, I've talked to many. Now I've had over two hundred and fifty episodes, and I've talked to many um, people that have been in combat, and they said it's always the ones that are all hua hua to get in combat are the ones that always freeze up first. Was that something that you seen while you were, or they said? They were so afraid of people having weapons that they were just afraid to give them ammo. <laughs> Did you uh, feel that way at all about, you know, ever see anybody like that where you're like, they're all hoo hoo, and then all of a sudden, all right, they, they're the first one to freeze up. It, yeah, most
1: definitely. Um, you know, we had a, a young man with us. We called him T.O. Uh, you know, cause he was just a hard charger. Uh, he was a little Terrell Owens, you know, he, he was going to get it. And, um, you know he was a saw gunner, and uh, you know he was he was pretty pretty damn hua, and until we made that first truck ride, and he actually got to look out the back flap and uh, see what where we were, and I think that drained all the hua right out of him. Uh, I, our first patrol, um, the they do the call to prayer, you know, five times a day. It's broadcast over speakers throughout villages and uh, he was standing underneath one of the speakers uh, on our first patrol when they started to the call to prayer and he completely uh, freaked out and jumped into a, a mud puddle uh, and uh, shortly after that we had to take away his bolt okay. uh, but yeah I mean they said, it,
0: there's some <clears throat> now that you know like I've talked to um, one gentleman you know he's had 13 deployments and it was always the person that you didn't think had that intestinal fortitude that actually steps out and becomes the uncalled, you know, quote unquote leader in in the squad. Now, you notice that also?
1: Uh, most definitely. Um, you know, uh, I, you know, without tooting my own horn. Uh, I would like to consider myself in that category. Um, You know, during the train up, I handled our RTO uh, job. Mostly uh, that's a radio telephone operator. Uh, That's the guy who has the radio who's communicating with headquarters to let everybody know what's going on. Um, You know, uh, as you mentioned, I was uh, rather handy with a 50 cal. Um, I was also one of the two designated marksmen out of our platoon. Um, so, uh, I was issued a ACOG four power, uh, combat optic, uh, which let me make a very clear distinction right here. I I was not a sniper, (laughs) never been to sniper school. I was a designated marksman. (laughs) Um, and, uh, you know, in that role just entailed, you know, uh, there's times when you need somebody that has an optic that's capable of, you know, reaching out and touching somebody with, con- with controlled, accurate fire. Um, and I was lucky enough to be that guy. And uh, also, because I had the ACOG, I didn't have a close quarter optic for my M4 and so I also volunteered to carry the shotgun, the breaching shotgun. Um, and so uh, I also walked point uh, every single patrol uh, that we ever did. And
0: so you were the Swiss Army knife of Afghanistan?
1: Uh, kind of, yeah. But, you know, it's because. Like I said before, you know, I, I it wasn't just I I was Johnny on the spot. You know, I'd spent my entire life training for this. You know, I, I made sure, you know, you very well know in tanks, you have to cross train, you know, the, the the driver has to be able to do the tank commander's job because the tank commander might get hit and that private might become the new platoon sergeant, you yeah. know, and so as to be a success in the military, you really need to be able to operate a minimum of two levels above yourself. And, you know, in my position that meant, you know, I needed to be able to conduct myself as a squad leader, Uh, which my squad leader was Jody Stubbs, another great, brilliant example. Um, So, you know, I never had to step up into that role. Thank God. Thank God he held that down very nicely, but, you know, there was times, you know, that I had to step up and be a fire team leader and, um, you know, lead a fire team as a specialist. Um, I want
0: to ask a question because um, a lot of people that are listening to this, they might not be, you know, maybe never been to war or never been in the military. What was that first time when you feel the bullets whizzing by And you, you, and it's contact. What was that like? The pucker factor had to go to like a thousand. But what were you feeling at that moment when you finally, when you first got contact, was it what you thought it would be?
1: No, (laughs) no, honestly, I can say that's the the one defining characteristic of the entire deployment is that I can honestly say nothing was what I thought it was going to be at all. Um, and you know, again, as a tanker, you know, you're trained that you've got seventy tons of, of steel wrapped around you, and uh, so you you just react. You know, you don't have to worry about uh, you're going to get hit. You're in a tank, you know. Uh, when you're on a Humvee uh, or on a dismounted patrol, that's a different scenario. Uh, <laughs> you know, and you have to act accordingly. And I'm going to tell you every single first that I experienced, um, the first uh, contact, the first RPG, the first mortar, the first rocket, the first IED, my first reaction honestly always was instantly confusion. <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> what was that? You know, there, even, no matter how locked on you are, like, until you become fully versed in all of the things that are going to happen, you know, you're going to see things that you didn't expect, and there's always a moment of, oh, crap, What? how am I supposed to react? What? What just happened? You know?
0: Uh. Because, you know, I've talked to, like I said, you know, I've talked to plenty of now Navy SEALs, Navy SEAL commanders, uh, you know, the guys that were in Mogadishu. And they said things actually sometimes, not everybody, but it actually slowed down for some of them. of speeding up. What was your um, reaction? Was it a slowdown where everything went kind of went in slow motion or was it just like, oh, shit, and all hell broke loose?
1: Oh, no, it was definitely slow motion. Um, definitely. And again, that was another first. And once you learn how to control that, that is the most powerful tool. That adrenaline dump can be the the difference uh, in how something turns out because your reactions are quicker. And when you know what to do, it's just instant. It's muscle memory. And so, you know, a good troop is going to do what's required of them without thinking, because that's what you're trained to do. Um, however, um, you know, the first time I got shot at, uh, I didn't even realize I was getting shot at. Um, we were just driving through town and somebody on a rooftop somewhere just started popping off an AK in our general direction and you know there's shit zipping by and it it was more like disbelief uh like what what the hell is going on but then instantly followed by that adrenaline dump and everything slowed down and in that those moments you can really put a lot of things together amazingly quickly Uh, um, You know, I, the first time I experienced that, uh, in a controlled way, um, I was reacting to a threat to our convoy and, uh, I was engaging the target with my, uh, sidearm, my nine millimeter. It was a, it was a crowd, crowded environment. And I was worried about, you know, target penetration, my backdrop, you know, all the things that you're supposed to think of. It's amazing how like time slows down to the point where you, you can think of these things in seconds, you know, you see what's going on. You see, okay, if I open up the 50, there's a hundred people behind him. Like, so you instantly know, like, okay, I've got to go to a small arm. And then it's like, well, they, they only respect pistols. Um, so I'll I'll try to scare him with my pistol and escalate the force, shout, show, shove, shoot. And when it came down to that moment of shoot, I ended up uh, doing a controlled pair while my Humvee was going over a speed bump. And to me, it seemed like uh, you know, ten minutes, and it was literally like you know a second.
0: Now you know I've talked to a couple operators, you know, force and all that stuff, and you know they said you know when when war, everything started kicking off, two thousand three, two thousand six, you know the rules of engagement were, um, you know, you get shot at, shoot back, you know, and then as it got, you know, later in time it was kind of like people could just hide in a mosque and we're not going to shoot back. So how was it, were you guys able to defend yourself without having to worry about, you know, I mean, using common sense, but you were able to defend yourself using the rules of engagement, correct?
1: Well, the the caveat to rules of engagement, it doesn't matter what the scenario is. And this is something that also, you know, applies at home when you're defending yourself It's, it's not so much, uh, the, the rules of engagement as being able to articulate the threat. Um, you know, uh, if the rules of engagement say you can't do something, but you can articulate and explain yourself to a higher power later as to why exactly you did what you did, um, you know, there's a chance you'd be okay. And I'm actually glad you brought that up because the exact instant that I'm talking, I was talking about earlier, uh, the, the minute that happened, uh, you know, we called up a contact report to hire and, you know, they said, all right, push through the site and return to base. We got to base, and then they called back and said, Hey, um, we're going to go ahead and start an investigation on that shooting. I need you guys to go ahead and turn around and come back. And it was a three hour drive from where we were stationed at Spearwangar to Kandahar Airfield uh, through the worst territory. And we had literally just sh- shot somebody coming in. And we were going to have to go through that, go out. There was no other way. Um, so instantly, you know, the first time I ever pulled a trigger. Um, also, it's my first 15-6 investigation. Um, and for the listeners who don't understand what that means, uh, a 15-6 investigation is the precursor to a court-martial. It is the fact finding segment of the court martial where they collect facts on the incident and they decide whether they're going to push for pressing charges or say, no, everything's kosher and let you go about your day. And so I just pulled the trigger for the first time, made it through the incident, got back to base, got the word. Nope, you got to come back. And so we had to turn around and drive through that same area. So instantly, you know, I'm definitely a little nervous about that. But we got back to the bait, uh, to Candahar Airfield without a problem. And, um, I then had to go relinquish my firearm and, uh, sit down with a lieutenant and tell him everything that happened. And then I had to speak to a captain and tell him everything that happened. And then I had to speak to a major and tell him everything that happened. And then I was told to go sit in a room and wait. And, you know, uh, at that moment, all I could think of was all the soldiers uh, up to that point that had been prosecuted for for firing in in combat and I'm in a room all by myself and uh, I all I can think is that I'm going to be one of them. Uh, you know,
0: this is why I asked that because you know I I interviewed a gentleman named, his name was Clint Clint Lawrence and he was actually put in jail for over 6 years and then finally pardoned by Trump just because of something that happened during wartime and a lot of times the people that he served with had to make that decision you know do i shoot back or am i going to be prosecuted for this so you know i just wanted to get your uh, opinion on it you know because people don't realize this you know like stuff we're talking about this is the real stuff you know it's not the whole you know you you you, everybody grabs their you know their saw puts gets puts all their ammo around and goes around like rambo No, you know this is the Mm -hmm. real stuff that happens and sometimes you have to make afterwards you have to, you know, figure out, do I take the shot? You know, like, this, like uh, Chris Kyle, you know, do you take the shot? Cause if you don't, if you do take the shot and you're wrong, you're going to jail. So, That's right. you know, and I'm sure that had to um, weigh heavy on a lot of people's minds when they were over there.
1: Well, Exactly that. And, and to that exact point, um, you know, in 2007 while we were there, uh, while we were still in Kabul, uh there was that brand new marine recon unit that had just been made specifically for afghanistan and uh they they flew into country and they were in the same area of operations that we were at the time and one day they were driving through a town and uh i i can't speak to what actually happened but you know the charges were that they basically uh somebody somebody heard a shot and so everybody opened fire both sides of the road and they just did a drive-by through the entire town and they were that was their first mission of this brand new brand new newly minted unit of elite troops And on their first mission, they committed a war crime and were all hauled up for investigation. And we were there for that and not for the incident. Uh, You know, we were in that area of operations while it occurred. And, you know, not only that, but uh, a few months later, there's a gunner on a Humvee and, uh, you know, he let somebody get on top of the truck and he didn't know if he should shoot or not. And he detonated the, the individual detonated a vest and killed everybody in the truck because he hesitated. So you constantly have those two things going back and forth in your mind. You know, uh, can I articulate this so that I don't go to jail? And, you know, can I defend myself? Um,
0: oh, by the way, I just got in touch with uh, to uh, S- Sergeant Major Cheatham. <laughs> let him know that he's being talked on a worldwide podcast. So I just let <laughs> him know. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, so tell us, bring us to the day of thirty October two thousand seven. I know. Now, for guys that are listening to this, um, me, you know, me and Brendan, we were we were ride or die buddies. You know, we were always there. Um, we were always next to each other, even in our vehicles. And, uh, that day that he got hit, um, we, we heard back in the rear, um, that he got hit and it was something, and it's something that had, you know, affected me, you know, over tw- for 20 years now that, no, it should have been me instead of him. And, um, and it really got me into a deep dark depression until, you know, somebody told me that, you know, it's just, it says w- it it was a God thing. So, but I just wanted to, you know, say, you know, that I love you, brother. And um, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, that you're, that you're okay. And that we're talking about this today. Cause I think more people are going to be touched by this than anything else. And especially, you know, for the people that we did lose, I want to mention their names because, you know, they're such special people, the fam- them and the families. So that's why I wanted to really talk about this and, and what, you know, um, what we deal with when we get home. Uh, so please talk about what happened on that day. And I, and I know it's going to be hard and I apologize, but if I don't ask the questions um, that people are not going to get the real answers.
1: And that's fine. That's, I agree hundred percent. And, you know, I'm, I'm ready to, to share, you know, what happened, but I think importantly, there's a little bit of backstory that we do need to lead up to and I'll keep it as brief as possible. But uh, 2007, while we were there, that is the year that there, we experienced the Taliban resurgence in Afghanistan. Um, 2006, um, 2007, um, Special Forces had pretty much done an outstanding job of pacifying the entire country. And at that point, that's when they decided that they were going to free up the uh, special forces because as masters of unconventional warfare, their job is to work with the army and local forces and train them how to be an army. Uh, But if they're training the locals, how to be an army, that means they're not out there looking for high value targets and doing the things that really need to get done uh, that you don't hear about in the background. And so, uh, 2007, uh, there, uh, there's a book out there about, uh, it's called the lines of Kandahar. Um, it's about the special, the largest special operations campaign in the history of the United States army. It occurred in our area of operations and, uh, we, we knew the story. But we didn't realize that that was months before we got there. We thought this was like 2002, 2003. We thought, oh, this was years ago. No, we didn't know three months before we got to Spiro Gar that it was the home of the largest special operations uh, battle in, in history. And when they decided to free up the special forces to do their job, we were going to take over the job of training and specifically our job uh, was to train the police. And so we were just so everybody who uh, might've not heard the first episode, uh, we were tankers who were then deployed as infantry uh, and then played the sec four role in uh, Kabul, just like we did at Fort Jackson until it was, they decided, well, you were going to go train the police because why not have tanker infantry train the police? Um, that makes sense. Um, but we took the job. That was our job. That was our mission. So we took it and that's what we did. But uh, that particular time frame the Taliban was coming back looking for payback. They, they got their butts kicked by the good guys and they wanted some, some payback. And so there was a huge resurgence. And two weeks prior to uh, October 30th, um, things really had started ramping up, and we also lost Sergeant Philpot, and uh, on a convoy operation. And a few days later, my very best good friend in the whole world, Louis Romano, uh, took an AK round to the face, and so. We were not having a good time of it. Um
0: We were, that, you know, a lot of people won't realize, you know, like when we lost Sergeant Phil. But and I say we because, you know, even though I wasn't there, you know, I, that we all felt that loss. What is it like f- for the the people, you know, in his platoon and squad? What is that feeling like, knowing that, you know, one second your buddy's there. And then the next, he's not, what does that do for your, for your, um, you know, not for, I don't want to say morale, but you know, just your, your attitude. I'm cause I'm sure there's, there's grief then there's anger. There must be like a, a lot of different emotions.
1: Almost definitely. I mean, it affects you on, on all the levels. There is grief, there's anger and there's motivation. And, um, the entire esprit de corps um, is disrupted. Um, When you lose somebody, um, especially when you're talking about a national guard unit, that's somebody, that's not just somebody you're serving with. That's somebody from your community. That's somebody that, that you used to see at home, you know, at the gas station um, or at school or whatever. Um, So it's, it, I, you know, I almost say like in a way it's almost deeper than losing somebody from active duty because, you know, on active duty, you don't, you don't spend as much time with people as you do in the guard. In the guard, you could spend 20 years with the same group of guys. That doesn't happen active duty. You know, you get promoted, you get moved. So when you lose anyone, it is deeply it deeply affects the entire unit and when it's somebody that was considered outstanding true it it hits that much harder
0: all right like i said you know because some people that are listening to this you know they don't know you know and that's why i wanted you to come on because you know sometimes if you know you talk to somebody you don't really know but you know, like me and you, we know each other, you know, you know, we've done, you know, I mean we've lived out of the same spit can and the same, you know, just you know. Yeah. So kind of <laughs> like you have, you know, that bond. And I want people to let people know what, you know, what it's really like. And it's not what you see in war movies and oh you know, you get they're gonna get so mad and they're gonna go right after the bad guys. It's not like that, that you, you go through all these emotions and sometimes this all these emotions at the same time.
1: Well, exactly. And the fact is, I mean, you're constrained by the rules of war. So there is no get back. There is no, oh, we're going to mount up and go, you know, kill that town. You know, it's not Rambo. Like that's how you go to jail. Like you have to accept that loss and roll on and realize there's nothing you can do about it. You you just have to accept it and keep moving forward and then uh, compartmentalize it, put it away. And don't think about it until you have time to do so safely.
0: So that day, were you on a convoy? Were you in town? How did that take place?
1: So that particular day, um, we, just to give a a little idea of of the area we were in, um, we'd been having some problems um, maintaining control of our police checkpoints in our area um the Taliban would literally come in in the middle of the night and uh kill the policemen uh and retake the checkpoint and um they it got worse and worse and it got to the point where they literally um about maybe two miles away from our front gate they they drew uh concertina wire across the road and um left a note and uh left word with the villagers to pass on to us that um the taliban has claimed everything beyond that concertina wire and um it basically uh you know don't start no shit won't be no shit um you know uh you stay on your side of the wire, we'll stay on ours, but don't come on our side because this is ours. Well, turns out, you know, our first police checkpoint was on about hmm, 500 meters past that wire. Um, and, you know, there is a, uh, a uh, several operations to take back and clear out that area that we were part of with our police. And once that had been done, the next step was to reman the checkpoints because all of our police had been, you know, killed or run off. Um, and I mean, literally like we, we uh, cut one of them out of a tree. They killed him and hung him up on a tree with a note around his neck uh, to let everyone know, like, this is what happens to people who work with America. And, um, you know, so we're having to, take a fresh batch of police to police substation one so that we can uh, replenish um, the troops there because the night before we had dropped some troops off, but the Canadians called us uh, a couple hours later to let us know that we had to come pick up our kids because we didn't leave enough blankets. And uh, so they started drawing down on each other with their AKs uh, and fighting over blankets and so the Canadians disarmed them and locked them up in a Connex. And they said, you need to come pick up your kids and bring some more.
0: Oh, it's <laughs> unbelievable.
1: <laughs> this, hey, every day, day—that's that's, that was life, every day. Um, and so we said, you know, roger that, no problem. Uh, we know, we know. We're sorry, we'll be there tomorrow. And, you know, we called the police chief and we told them like, Look, we, we need some more bodies out there and, um, you know, we're sick of this crap and you guys are going to start working. You know, you guys are going to start walking out front. You guys are going to start clearing buildings. You guys are going to start having to work. We're not going to do your job for you anymore. Um, our job is not to fight. And that's that was the craziest thing about it. We're combat troops in a non-combat role in a non-American battle space, we were living on a Canadian firebase, And so, you know, and, and we're forced to work with these guys that, that come to work high every day. Um, you know, they didn't get paid for like three months and, uh, we got them their first paycheck. And the first thing they did was they blew it on a gigantic bag of opium. And, uh, as soon as Lieutenant Broadway led the, uh, patrol around the corner, uh, they broke out the hookahs and every, every single one of the police got completely blitzed on opium. Um, they also, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the, uh, the weed garden that they had in the police station. Um, the first time. We went to meet with our police. They wouldn't let us in because they thought we were there to take their weed away um, because they knew America was anti-drug. And so they didn't want to even let us into the police headquarters because they thought we were going to take their weed. But uh, so this is what we're dealing with. And on top of everything else, you know, Afghan time is, you know, we'll get there when we get there. And we told them, you know we've got to we've got to move out. Like we need to be on the road by eight. That's a tough stretch for Afghans, but they said they'll do it. Well, we're there. We're in we're in position, waiting to link up with them on the road. They're supposed to. We're we were meeting them, uh, and they're supposed to to meet us there, and we were going to escort them the rest of the way. And uh, they showed up four hours late it was noon by the time the police showed up and during that wait, we had had uh, all the, all the alarms were going off. Like uh, we had people on motorcycles driving by scoping us out, you know Um, we were just sitting there for hours waiting for these guys to show up and we didn't know what was going on. And unfortunately, you know, the Canadians we were working with at the time were French Canadians. Um, so there there is uh, some language barriers with the intelligence briefings as well. But uh, so that day, I mean, our, our only job was just to deliver these, these police to the checkpoint and get the other ones out of the connex and take them back home. That was all we were supposed to do eight o'clock. We'll be done by 10. We're done by noon. You know Uh, that's it. Easy day boys. Easy day. And uh, you know, by the time they showed up and uh, we rolled out, um, Lieutenant Broadway was able to organize them into clearing columns ahead of the trucks. And so, uh, Lieutenant Broadway, Star- Sergeant Billingsley, and uh, Sergeant Bullard were all on the road ahead of the trucks with the police clearing the path uh, to make sure that, you know, we didn't hit an IED. Uh, because you couldn't go anywhere on the roads without clearing because there was IEDs everywhere. Um, so, when we start we finally got the monkey train rolling and um basically we caught ourselves in a complex l-shaped ambush um which is the worst thing that can happen to you um who
0: was in your truck
1: uh in my truck at that time was uh, Specialist Davis was driving. uh, Captain, our uh, team leader, uh, I won't name names there, was in the truck. Uh, He refused to get out of the truck and clear the route with Lieutenant Broadway. He said Broadway was being foolish and wasting time, and uh, he needed to get back in the truck because we had a timeline that was blown. And uh, Broadway told him, you know, well, we'll get there when we get there. We're going to clear the road. So Broadway took the only dismounts we had left, which were himself, Billingsley, and Bullard. And as he did every single mission, he led the way.
0: Now, did, did an IED go off or did you guys just start getting shot at?
1: Well, um, that they... Initiated the ambush with an IED, um, and that's where that's what I mean when I say a complex ambush. Um, they they were getting smarter, and they knew you know up to that point their tactics were pretty much just to use anti personnel mines to um, disrupt movement um, or disable vehicles. But it was pretty much a one and done. They would something would blow up, and that was it. Um, but starting that day, uh, was a new tactic, which was, uh, as soon as the ID goes off, open up with every single thing they had. Um, so the first thing that, uh, alerted anyone to danger was a massive explosion, uh, in front of the first truck, uh, in between the truck and the dismounts on the road. And uh, and they immediately opened up with small arms and light machine guns. Um, And they even brought out uh, RPGs, mortars, and recoilless rifles. Um, They literally hit us with every single thing they had. Um, What we didn't know at the time was that they had been baiting the Canadian QRF all morning. And they're trying to draw the Canadians out because the Canadians had tanks. So they were, they were set up with a complex ambush, prepared to engage four Canadian Leopard 2 tanks. And instead, they got three American Humvees. So, turkey shoot.
0: So you were way, out, way outgunned, way outmanned. Now, when you seen um, Sergeant Bullard go down, were you hit at this point or was that afterwards? Well, uh,
1: basically what happened, uh, you know, our training was when something detonated, pushed through. Um, so the IED detonated, All the all the dismounts jumped into a ditch on the right side of the road. There's a, deep culvert on the right-hand side of the road uh they jumped in for cover uh the first humvee pushed through the explosion site and um kind of got out got out of the kill box and our third humvee backed up behind another wall and got itself out of the kill box unfortunately i was in the middle humvee and i was trapped immediately in the middle of the kill box um So, uh, at the time when Bullard was hit, I was very busy engaging targets, uh, with my crew serve weapons. At the time, um, I had used my prior welding knowledge skills to weld up some new weapon mounts for the trucks and some, some fancy little gadgets. So I had, uh, a 50 Cal. Uh, was my primary weapon system, and I had a M249 saw as a secondary, and I also had my M4 and my M9. And uh, I had two 25-millimeter ammo cans on either side of my turret to hold extra boxes of 50 ammo as my uh, ready ammo boxes. Uh, So uh, I was... I was very busy Um, the minute uh, the enemy realized that the first truck wasn't disabled and that we weren't trapped. um, That's when they brought their RPGs to bear on the first truck. Um, At that time, uh, Sergeant Bullard followed his training. He had gotten out of the ditch and was using the hood of the Humvee as cover, using the engine block as as uh, cover, and returning fire over the hood. And uh, so when they brought the RPG to bear to on the first truck to try to trap us in that spot, um, it actually skipped across the hood and, uh, and hit Bullard.
0: Now I now you got a um a citation for actually going to help Sergeant Bullard under fire correct
1: Well I I didn't actually go to help him basically what had happened was uh, shrapnel from the RPG that hit Bullard flew back and hit the gunner on the lead truck and knocked him out and took him out of the fight um So, the minute Bullard was taken out of the fight, it also took down our primary, our main weapon system on that truck. And the third truck was not in a position to uh, return um, good suppression fire. So, I manned my turret, and in spite of my ammo being shot and catching fire and, uh, being shot four times, uh, being knocked out for about, uh, five, 10 minutes. I got back up and continued to, uh, lay suppression fire down. Uh, because at that point I couldn't hear anymore. I was, I was completely deaf. And, uh, all I could see was, uh, somebody was laying beside the ditch and there was nobody in the first truck. And so I thought, uh, that the gunner had been blown out of the truck. I didn't even realize that was Bullard at the time. Um, I thought it was our lead gunner. And then realizing that I was the only crew serve weapon capable of, uh, providing cover. I just went into overdrive and, uh, made sure that I kept the suppression going so that they could recover the body and uh, that we could get back in the trucks and get out of there.
0: So then you guys, DD Mound, you got went got back to base?
1: Uh, well, actually, we had to continue to the checkpoint. Uh, and at that point, uh, we called in the contact and um, that was when we figured out one of the main things that had gone wrong, our our commander had forgotten to turn off the jamming equipment in our truck that was designed to jam radio control IEDs. Well, it also jams radio communication. So the entire time that we were in this fight, I was calling for help and I wasn't getting any answers. And I was told that we had, Close, close air support on station and I couldn't get them and uh, you know by the time we got to the substation that's when we realized their radios weren't working either I thought it was perhaps the radio had been shot um, when we got to the substation that's when we realized the captain never turned off the jammer and so the guys at headquarters were hearing everything happen in live real time over the radio and were completely powerless to help us because If you can't tell help where you are, they can't send help to you. Yeah.
0: So when you got back to their you know, when you got back to the rear, not the rear, but when you got back to your fob and we realized that, you know, you lost Sergeant Bullard, I'm sure that had to be, you know, heavy, heavy on everybody's hearts. And, you know, and then just realizing yourself that Wait a minute, you know, because I've talked to a lot of people that, you know, like I I was talking to some guys and they were on, um, they were supposed to be on the flight with um, Exhaustion 17 when when, um, the helicopter with all the Navy SEALs went down and he felt he never forgave himself for not being on that plane. So what was it like, you know, realizing that, you know, you made it? And um, Sergeant Bullard didn't. Did that have any effect on you?
1: I. That was the most deeply affecting moment of my career. Um, because the simple fact of the matter was that his his nickname as Superman. It wasn't. It wasn't just a nickname. Like this man. All right, was driving a Humvee one day and a suicide bomber crashed into the side of the Humvee, detonated, blew his Humvee up. All four tires were completely gone. The rims were on fire and he brought that truck back across the gate. Um, and his occupants that were with him were safe. Um, he got out, not a scratch. Um, we saw this man walk through firefights. Uh, stand up and and give direction while bullets were whizzing around him like nothing touched him ever he was superman and so when you see superman fall it's when you realize like if superman can go like what what chance do i have i'm dead
0: so how long how much longer did you guys stay in in afghanistan
1: uh it was another another two months we pulled out of there um a little bit into december
0: okay and now because now i want to get into your story you know um by the way this is the first time i've ever talked to anybody for two hours And, (laughs) and, and uh we i've never even on my other show we've never went into detail about anything that's happened over there so I just want to let you know. And it's, it's all because in honor of what you've done and in honor of Sergeant Bullard and Sergeant Philpott and their families. So that's the only reason why. Um, so when you get back home, you know, because I've talked to a lady. Her name is uh, Gianna Verratti, and she's in charge of the, the National um, Warriors Foundation. And she says, you know, every everybody she talks to, you know, when a man goes away to war he comes back a different person so when you came back you must have been a totally different person mentally what was that like coming back and then having to reintegrate back into the National Guard system and the regular system you know I've talked to a lot of people and you know and they get stressed out and they're driving because of traffic and you know I people I've said they said listen as long as there's no IEDs going off around me, <laughs> where nobody's shooting at me traffic is not a big deal, <laughs> but it gives you a different perspective on life. So what was it like reintegration back into the national guard system? And also uh, as a, as a trying to get back into a, a regular job and trying to be a regular person again.
1: Wow. Um, please tell me you have another hour. Like, oh, we got,
0: we got, I think this goes, I can allow, allow me to go like another 53 minutes. So,
1: Okay, good, cuz I'm going to tell you this is this is where you really need to strap in. <laughs> um this is where things get interesting. And uh to to start off with, yes, I was a very different person when I came back. You know, as I mentioned, uh I had just, you know, made peace with my past and found myself one with the world just prior to going to combat. I, I went in there with, uh, rosy colored, uh, John Lennon glasses on. I, I tried to learn the language. I did learn a good bit of the language. Um, you know, I, I tried to be the best ambassador for the U S that, that we could be. Um, Because ultimately, you know, that's the real mission, hearts and minds, right? Um, But then when you get into a series of situations where, you know, let's say October 30th, um, you realize that there's true evil in this planet. Um, And those rosy colored glasses get knocked off real quick. And, you know, it's like Mike Tyson says, you know, everybody got a plan. So they get punched in the face. It's true. You know, Yeah, and coming back was definitely life's punch in the face. Um, and I had a plan, you know, I, I thought I'm going to come back. There's going to be a ticker tape parade. People are going to fucking hand me jobs. Um, you know, I'll never want for, for money, food or, or fame again. Like I've made it, you know? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That, that was not quite the case uh, at all. Uh, (laughs) um, You know, I was very, I was very idealistic and I had become very disillusioned. Um, I had gone in very, very optimistic and, and hopeful and came out very jaded. And not only, not only questioning myself, my decisions, But questioning the nature of existence and the reality of God, you know, literally questioning everything down to my very core of my existence. And as you have said so articulately many times on your podcast, I had to find Sergeant Brendan and rebuild Mr. Mahaney you know
0: I I had during this time when you get home the military is not cooperating with you correct
1: that is very correct um and that's another great point I'm glad you brought that up um you know when another great thing about the National Guard well let's just say it's a a double-edged sword you know when you know the guys back home um that's great, uh, but unfortunately, that leads to to clicks and so good old boys systems. And um, coming back from that deployment, you know, uh, I received you know a Purple Heart. I got an Army Commendation Medal with a, a V device for valor. Uh, you know, I had been through the ringer and everybody knew it and at first when i first returned there was a distance because i think people saw that thousand yard stare and they didn't know what to do you know um they just knew i was different um it's it's basically like uh when a fighting dog becomes blooded you know uh you can't put him back on the chain you, you, once you let him off and he's he's bit blooded you know that's that's all that dog's going to do and um that was my mindset and you know um
0: now I got a question because you know I'm checking Like I said, I've never been in that situation, so I don't have any idea. Um, like and like you said, you know, it's all it's a God thing. Um, but you know, you got back, you're in the shit. You know, you you've been through firefights, you've been through RPGs, and now you're sitting in the drill hall, and they want you to do sergeant time, and you're like, "Fucking sergeant time? Are you serious? This is the stuff going on now. You must have sometimes just had to really just look around." this is bullshit. You know? This is, I don't get it. You know, cause you, you all of a sudden you're super high speed and you're, you're in the shit. And now you're talking about doing sergeant's time. I'm sure that had to affect you one way or another.
1: Oh, definitely. Um, and you know, another thing that, uh, occurred shortly after I returned, uh, I got my stripes, um, you know, I was promoted to E5 Sergeant. And, you know, on top of everything else, you know, I was now also saddled with the responsibility of uh, other people. And I, like you, um, I followed your example. I followed Sergeant Cheatham's example. I followed Broadway's example, Grenier's example. I followed the great examples that I had around me. And, made damn sure that my troops were always squared away. They're always taken care of. They're never abused. And they knew their shit. And, um, you know, so when we would have, uh, you know, commander's time or whatever, uh, my tank crew, uh, we'd bust out the the Ranger handbook. And it's like, okay, guys, um, you know, we're, we're going to uh, let's set up a complex ambush, you know, or all right, guys, we're going to work on stopping a uh, sucking chest wound. You know, um, I would make stuff up to fill the time because as an NCO, after everything I'd been through and realizing, like, you know, we we're going to get slotted for another deployment, I had to get these kids ready. Like, that I had to. That was my job.
0: So, what is the disconnect between you in leadership to eventually getting thrown out what happened mm. what i mean you don't have to go into details and with who but what mm. happened what was the disconnect
1: um i am so glad you asked that question basically uh this is it, it boils down to another scenario that you would only find in the national guard um Uh, we were, we finished our combat deployment, which meant we were on the rotation to pick up another one. And there was a, uh, mission coming up to go train the Kuwaitis in Kuwait. And I guess there was a Kosovo mission slotted. And then there's going to be another, uh, Afghan deployment after that. You know, that's how the schedule worked. You know, you do a, a combat deployment and then, you know, a training deployment, and then a peacekeeping deployment and then back to another combat deployment again, um, at least in the guard. You know, that's how they tried to work it. And um, so the uh, the first step there, the Kuwait mission was coming up. And, uh, you know, I had some some friends at the top that let me know, hey, I know what you've been through. But if you value your career. Do not mention anything about PTSD, do not talk about issues at home. Um, if you want to continue to serve, uh, you need to suck it up and drive on. And well, uh, you know, I was not that guy and I had already put in a claim with the VA for PTSD. Um, I, I was seeking treatment at the time. Um, and I was doing everything that, you know, I thought you were supposed to do. Uh, you come home, you demob, and they say, here's these resources. If you have a problem, make a call, you know, uh, if you need assistance, we're here to help you. Um, if you, you know, you're having problems with your thoughts or can't sleep, you know, here we're here for you, but it really turned out. You know, everybody who reached out for those resources ended up getting flags on their, uh, on their um, folders, on their files, and uh, basically branded sick, lame, and lazy. Uh, and you know, with a deployment coming down the tube. Uh, we got to have our numbers at a certain percent in order to, you know, to be able to go and we have to get all these guys who are broken off the rolls because we, we, they're not deployable. We have to get rid of them. And, you know, unfortunately another big problem, you know, reared its head, which is just like in 2003, when you have national guard people playing army uh they don't know what they're doing and i was supposed to be medically discharged uh but you know they really had never had to do anything like that before and it was hard and i'm sure you know it it gave them a fit to figure out how to get the packet together so to make life easier for everybody, uh, they just went ahead and uh, gave me a general discharge. So wait,
0: and... hold, on, hold on, hold on a second, because now I'm getting aggravated. You know, because like I said, I, I actually had to sit through the, the whole warrior transition unit. So they gave you a Purple Heart recipient with Valor, a general discharge for going to the places that they gave you the sources to go to.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um, and not just me. I, I want to make that very clear. That's why I was I'm most glad that you brought this up, because I'm not the only one this happened to. Um, you know, there, I, I'm not going to mention names, but there were other people who sought help. And every single person who sought help was syst- systematically removed from the role. And in my case, um, the way they went about doing it was sending me a memorandum in the mail saying that uh, I had just been enrolled in the medical board process. My medical retirement was pending. Um, don't go to drill. Don't go to AT. Don't call us. We'll call you. Um, just make sure you so- you show up for any appointments and give us any records we ask for. Uh, fuck you for your service. Have a nice day. And I apologize for the language, but that was the tone. Um, you know. And after 14 years of service, uh, two deployments. Uh, the second one I had to volunteer for. Uh, Purple Heart. You know. Yeah. Like I felt a little, a little betrayed because one minute you're sending me a memo saying that you're going to take care of me because I sought help. And then the next six months later I get a packet and I'm thinking it's my retirement packet and, uh, you know, open it up only to find out there's a general discharge in there. And the, the causation for the discharge was because I was AWOL for six months after they told me not to come to drill
0: so now and i'm sure i i know it's been a long fight but you had to fight this correct
1: i did um unfortunately um i had a lot of on my plate at that time and uh my children were born in 2009 and i was going through a divorce in 2011 and that also happened to coincide with this exact time frame, uh, and the way I actually received my discharge packet, um, even though I had updated my mailing address on the uh, you know the the company contact roster every single drill like they told me to, uh, they sent my my discharge packet with the general discharge right on top to my ex-wife's address and uh, you know, she accidentally opened it and then, you know, that just happened to work out really well for her that the army was willing to do her dirty work for her because, you know, basically if the army said I was a piece of trash, then, you know, so would the family court. Uh, So I kind of had to, assess my priorities and I was enraged and I, I wanted to fight, but I also had to fight for my kids and my kids were more important to me than anything. And so that was the first step was getting through a divorce that took over two years and $50,000. um, And, uh, you know, I'm working at a pizza joint, trying to make ends meet. And, uh, my buddy, Louis Romano just shows up and happens to walk in. Hey buddy, how are you doing? Uh, how's the retired life treating you? You know, and that's when I told him what had happened and he said, you're kidding me. And I said, no, he said, do you still have the paperwork? And I said, of course, you know, they train, you keep everything. Mm. And so, you know, I showed him the memo saying, stay home. And I showed him the packet saying, you're AWOL. And that's when things took off. He, the first call he made was uh, Lieutenant Broadway. And the two of them met with the uh, AG and brought it to his attention that uh, they were aware that he was up for reelection in a couple months. And it would not look very good if there was a news story out that uh, there was an illegal discharge under his command right before an election. So luckily, we were able to apply the proper motivation to get the process rolling again.
0: And how long did it take for you to finally get everything squared away?
1: It was another three years. Um, I had to, they had to bring me back into the army. Um, they had, I had to go through all the, the PDHRA, the post deployment health risk assessment Mm -hmm. stuff. All again, I had to go through the dental, the psych, all that stuff. I had to go through all that again. Um, they gave me an ID card and they said, okay, well you're back in until you're retired. So, uh, there you go. We held up our end of the, of the deal. Uh, see you later. And that's when the, uh, South Carolina army national guard, uh, as a organization kind of, uh, washed its hands of me. And, uh, you know, that's when it was my brothers who took care of me and helped me get through that period.
0: So wait a minute, they, they put you back in, right? Yes, and now you're back in, and where did you have to go for drills and stuff?
1: Well, you know' that's, that's the, the best part. Um, you know, I got another uh, do not drill memorandum and I kind of had a flashback there. Um, but basically that was the, it was the, the same rules. you know uh, don't don't show up to drill. Uh, just show up if we make you an appointment. And make sure you have your your medical records available if we need
0: them. But was this one legit?
1: <laughs> oh, this one was legit. Finally, and the 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 best part about it was, um, due to, I would say probably the dynamic pressure that was applied to the powers that be, uh, they made sure that they handed it off to the active duty to handle because my wounds were sustained on active duty and my disabilities occurred while I was on active duty and it was the active duty's job to take care of me, uh, basically what they should have done in, you know, 2008.
0: Now, did they medically retire you? Do you get a pension and all that?
1: Um, I was, uh, finally medically retired August 15th of, uh, 2015 And, uh, the unfortunate thing is, um, if you do not have 20 years of service, you're not allowed to draw your VA disability and your retirement at the same time. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I had 14 years of service, which when you added it up to active duty time was a total of five years, nine months and, 30 days or whatever of active duty time. Uh, so I was not entitled to uh, any retirement benefit uh, other than the benefits of being retired. Um, now, I will say, uh, because I was gone through the active duty process, I was assigned an um, Army uh Transition assistance uh, coordinator, and she made sure that uh, I was getting everything I needed. And she let me know that um, due to the fact that there are so many veterans in the same position as me that might have only served uh, uh, three years and were wounded and discharged due to combat. Uh, there's a a new program they they started called uh, combat related special compensation and basically it's a prorated retirement based on your actual years of service so it's it's an extra 300 bucks a month
0: now do you um, um, va are you va 100% uh n-
1: no Um, I do, I do have a current rating of 90. Um, we are still fighting that battle as well. Um, and, uh, so I do, I do draw my, uh, 90% disability and I get my combat related special compensation on top of that. So, uh, but the problem that you run into there is that, you know, you're talking, um, about twenty three hundred dollars a month, and uh, if you have kids, um, that's not a lot.
0: Yeah. So you know, I was just thinking, you know, like we were talking about that video, you know, that we made. Um, maybe a good idea was if we can, you know, eventually you know, remaster it and 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 push it out and um, raise some money some for Sergeant Philpot. And Superman's family. I think maybe that would be pretty cool. Um, what are your thoughts?
1: I'm 100, yeah. 100 behind it.
0: And uh, so now, tell us. You know, because you know we've been through the dark side, but you know I always try to end on positive notes. What is life like now with being Brendan Mahaney? How did you <laughs> become the man you are today? You know, how did you get help? Because I'm sure you had to go for help, you know, especially struggling with with survivor's guilt and all that other stuff. How did you go about getting help?
1: Well, um, you know, the, the key to that, um, and I think I'm not the only one who has suffered from this thought process, is the first step is being willing to accept help and you know as i said when i came back i was a very different person i went through a very nasty divorce um and you know there came a time when i was uh homeless living in a tent and uh literally, uh, my, my VA disability, which is what I was living on at the time was being garnished for a, a drill payment overpayment. payment. Uh, and at the time I was, I was only had, uh, about 300 to $180 a month to live on. And, uh, I said, you know, the situation's untenable. Um, I'm, I'm in a bad spot and, I don't know what to do. And at the time I felt very alone. Um, You know uh, the way I had been very unceremoniously removed from my unit. uh, The fact that it was done behind closed doors and that my own brothers don't really even know what happened. um, You know, I literally dropped off the face of the earth and I think fell through every single crack that you could possibly fall through to the point where I, I had literally uh, I'm living in a tent and I didn't even have a truck and uh, you know, but that's where it began. That is honestly where it began because my decision to go into the woods was not, uh, it was not a one that I took lightly It was a measured and calculated plan. Uh, You know, I realized I was in a spot where um, I I didn't have a direction. I didn't have money. I didn't have a credit score. Um, Well, I did, but, you know, it was not very good. Um, I, I didn't have much of a foundation, I had all the tools. And I had the pieces, but I hadn't put that together into a solid foundation yet. And my plan was, you know, the one thing the army trained me to do is to live and survive. And I'm going to strip myself of uh, all the trappings and get away from everything and figure my stuff out. Because what I was doing was not working. And I was going down a very bad path, and I didn't even know where I was going. Um, so how long and were you
0: in so, the woods? How long were you homeless in a tent?
1: A little over nine months. Um, and this was also during the uh, the retirement process. Um, you know, uh, and. Because, you know, I took a very hard inventory of what was going on. And I realized, you know, I have negative cash flow. uh, I've got horrible credit. um, You know, uh, things aren't working. I, I need to make some changes. But I can't do that where I'm at now. I'm in a bad spot. I'm in a bad environment. I'm in a bad place. I need to remove myself from that. And, you know, when I come out of the woods, I'll be a better person on the other side. <laughs> and that's that's what I did.
0: So, I, now, talk to me the day, because I'm picturing in my mind, you know, because I'm the kind of guy, whenever I talk to somebody, it's like playing a movie in, in, in my mind. So tell me, because I, I have a thought, what was it like walking out of that... Um, the woods for the last time and seeing daylight. What was that moment like?
1: Um, to be honest, at the time, I didn't even appreciate it for what it was. Um, but I was so focused, I was so ready, and I was motivated. And that was the most important thing for me. You know, it's funny because I never even thought about it until you just said something. But I think
0: that's why somebody, some great guy called me the veteran Joe Rogan. And I've I've been called the veteran Oprah because sometimes I just try to ask questions that are going to be pertainable for people to listen and be like, you know what, if he got through it and he made it, I can make it. I just want to give people hope, you know.
1: That's, that's exactly it. And I mean, you know, looking back now today at this moment, at that moment, I realized that was the first step in, in the rest of my life. I, I had figured some things out. I had gathered my tools and all these pieces of crumbled foundation that kept getting knocked down and cobbled something together. And I had a plan. And it was time to execute and looking back now, I mean, you know, damn, I'm, I'm really proud of myself actually, (laughs) you know, um, that was the day that was the first day of my rest of my life right then.
0: So now what is life like now in, in, in Brendan's life? Tell me about all the good things. Cause I know you're, you're an amazing father. You have beautiful children, um, you have a career that you're going on and I started following you on LinkedIn too. So just cause I'm creeping, um, but, <laughs> but you know, tell us about the great things that are happening in your life now.
1: Well, I'm going to say this. It all started the day that I stopped being too proud to ask for help. And on that day, my good battle buddy, Louis Romano, I mean, he, God bless him he stuck by my side through everything and everything I went through and all my ups and downs and was always there to pick me up and, um, and, and dust me off and tell me it's going to be okay. And uh, wow. I'm uh, actually getting emotional on that. Um, but that, that is what made all the difference because I was in such a dark place. Um, but I knew there was no way that I was going to let life beat me. I was not going to let life take me out and I was going to be there for my kids. And, uh, you know, Louis, he, he would come he, Hey man, you know, I'm working at a new place. I think I can get you a job, you know? Um, no, you know, I'm, I can, I can figure it out on my own. You know, I could figure it out on my own. And every time he'd get a new job, Hey man, you know, I can get you in over here. I'll I'll figure it out, you know? But what I didn't realize is that I didn't have anything figured out. And which is why I went to the woods. And when I came out, it was to a new job, working with Lewis um, and a new start. And not only that, but I found my passion. And that is something, if, if anybody takes anything away from the story, please hear this. Find your passion. Um, I don't care if it's underwater basket weaving. I don't care if it's designing supercomputers. Whatever is your passion, if you pursue that, it is your passion, you will succeed.
0: I love that. Okay, now I'm going to do a couple rapid-fire questions, and then we're going to head out because I think my, son, my phone is going to die. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, you, know, ask, you know, because we have a lot of friends in common, so I'm just going to ask a few of them how you feel about them now. You know, we, know we talked about uh, your, your friend. Uh, we just talked about him. Donald Grenier. What can you say about the man?
1: The band, the myth, the legend. Uh, I mean, there, what, there you go. That's another, uh, desert storm vet who her answered the call on nine got his ass on the treadmill and reenlisted in the guard to serve his country. Um, that man has been integral in so many ways. um, You know, he was the first person to start really introducing me to passion uh, because he is a passionate person. And, you know, he's passionate about welding, fabrication, uh, NASCAR. And he was integral in starting my quest for passion. Um, Can't say enough good about that man and his impressions uh, will keep you rolling all day long. He was in
0: that video, so that's going to be fun
1: yes another star jody stubbs oh jody uh I, again i mean what 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 can i say i mean there's another man that has had some struggles and has come through on the other side and you know he was always somebody that could be looked up to as a uh a role model and uh and a leader. And I mean, it, again, could make you laugh. Um, I, we recently just, uh, linked up on Memorial day. We went and visited, uh, Superman together and it was great to see him. And, uh, that's another lifelong brother right there.
0: Yep. So we talked about Sergeant, uh, Bullard, Sergeant Philpott. <sighs> Cause like I said, the reason I want to do this is to honor, their legacy and their families. So,
1: you know, I have to say, honestly, that's probably one of the tougher ones. Um, and I didn't know him as well as Bullard and I wasn't there with him. Um, I, I, Was there the day before they left, I spoke, we talked about the mission and he was apprehensive and, um, you know, they were doing something that was very dangerous and, but being the NCO that he was, um, he nodded, accepted the mission and, you know, I, I was helping him lay out his ammo. He was getting ready. Um, and I didn't know that was going to be the last time I'd see him, but to be a hundred percent honest, and I, I hate to kind of digress, but it's, it is definitely a part of my feelings. Um, the way the aftermath of his death on a little more detail, um, you know, when somebody passes in combat, the first thing that happens is they're supposed to be, you know, a communications blackout and um, to prevent people from notifying the family before they are officially notified by the military. Um, and I think... His scenario was one where the good old boy system uh, went askew. Um, After his passing, uh, people immediately got on the phone, let people know what what happened. Uh, The next of kin ended up being notified before um, the official notification. And to top it off, uh, from what I hear, she was at work wow. when it happened. Wow. And to be a thousand, you know, 3000 miles away and to hear something like that just happen, you know, you already lost your brother. And now to hear that happen to his family, um, that was, I'm still mad about that. Yep. That still bothers me. And, it also bothers me because it tied into what happened with Bullard, uh, because in order to prevent that from happening again, rather what they decided to do was, um, have the ramp ceremony immediately that night, the day of the event, um, to try to get him home before the, the news got home, uh, which ended up being a side mission in itself. But, we almost missed the ramp ceremony for our team leader because of how things were handled with, with, uh, with Otis.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and, uh, one of the guys that really, and I said it earlier and, you know, I want to get your opinion on, you know, uh, Sergeant Shepard, you know, Robert, um, when I was at my lowest, and nobody wanted me on his tank. He took me under his wing. Him and um, Tater, and I've been in touch with Tater. <laughs> uh, him and Dale kind of took me under their wing. And um, even though I was a Game Gamecocks fan, break, break my horns about you know Clemson. And when I mm. lost him, it, it really uh, destroyed me. What were your thoughts on Robert Shepard?
1: Uh, uh, similar, um, you know, uh, Shep, you know, he let me sleep on his couch as well. Um, he also made sure that if I wanted a cot at the armory, I could have it. Or if I wanted to sleep in the, uh, the officer's, uh, room on their couch, I could do that too. Um, because taking care of his guys was more important than the rules sometimes you know and that's something that great leaders understand and um he was an outstanding tanker uh, uh, a brilliant master gunner um it, if you had a question about anything he, he had an answer and again another brilliant role model, you know, he's one of the guys it's like, I want to be that guy. You know, I want to be the guy. Like, if you got a question, come to me. Cause I know, cause I'm a subject matter expert because that's what an NCO is. And
0: that's what he was. Yeah. I love that. All right. Last two questions. Um, you don't have anything to sell and obviously, um, but we're going to, like I said, we're going to get together, remaster the, that, that, that uh, DVD uh, put it up for sale so we can raise money. So we just can you know, because anything I ever do in life is always to give back. Um, and that's all I want to do is be able to support others. And, and I think there's no, no better cause than supporting our because our friends' families, because a lot of times, you know after the funerals and everything like that, the phone stops ringing. the people stop bringing over casseroles and it kind of gets forgotten about. So I think you know if they, if anybody can get in touch with you, how how can we get in touch with you?
1: Uh, wow, that's a great one. Um, probably the socials. Um, you can find me on Facebook, I think. Um, I'll check. I don't know if I'm public or not. Um, but you know, to anybody out there who who knows me, you know, hopefully you've got my number if you don't, please please reach out to me on the Facebook and you will have my number because exactly as you said, it's the heart of service. I have to pay back what my brothers gave to me, you know, my brothers were there for me, they picked me up, they got me to where I am now because, there is vi- victory is meaningless. If your brothers aren't there with you and we all win together and uh, you know, it, I am there. If you guys need anything, anybody needs anything, hit me up social. I I will get back to you.
0: I <laughs> would love to definitely maybe get Ramos to come on and, and tell us his story. And, you know, and give him some props and, you know, show him some love. Oh, now, last question I ask everybody, because I I ask a hundred questions and I get a hundred different answers. You know, we live in a crazy world now. COVID, you know, where grandparents are teaching kids, parents are homeschooling. And if you, you know, if you ask somebody to do something in seven days, they're never going to get to it. But if you ask somebody to do something in the next 24 hours, they're more likely to take an actionable step. So if somebody, you know, or somebody out there that's listening to this is struggling right now, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to get help?
1: So glad you asked that question. I have prepared for this question and uh, I'm going to give it my best shot. Um, (laughs) Here we go. You know, I think. I've listened, all of your guests have had excellent answers to that question. And, you know, the main thing that I would want to stress to somebody is to act. And what I mean is that too often it's too easy to get trapped in your own head, to get trapped in your own emotions, to get trapped in your own thoughts. And, to get trapped in a situation. And the minute you realize that you are not in a situation that behooves you and your success, it you have to act. And if that is reaching out to a brother or sitting down and evaluating how you got there, do something, make that step because, you know, The journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. You got to do something. You can't sit there and let things happen. You have to take control and make that first step.
0: Wow. I love that brother. Thank you so much. Um, I'm sorry. I took up so much of your time today. You know, (laughs) always just think your story just needs to be told and we're going to put it out in a three part series, which will go out in three different weeks. So people can get, get it like a TV series. Um, and I just want to say thank you for always being there for me, always being a battle. Um, I just remember all the time just sitting around watching stupid, playing stupid video games, listening to horrible music. And uh, you know, I just want to say you know thank you for your friendship, and uh, I hope our relationship lasts for, for for generations.
1: Always, always, brother. I'm always here for you. If I can make one plug very quickly, sure. This is you guys. This is for you. This is not me. But I, I promised that, you know, I was going to discuss what, what I went through and what worked and, uh, what worked for me. But, uh, I was recently contacted by one of our brothers, uh, Sergeant Jeremy Reyes. And he let me know about a program that worked for him. And I contacted them and spoke with them for a little bit today before coming on the show. And, uh, I want to put this out there, um, There is a program and it is called. Um, so sorry, I had it pulled up a second ago. Um, okay, the program is called Path Warrior Path for Combat Vets, it is a camp. In Georgia and to quote Sergeant Reyes uh, you know uh, let me uh, let me flip over to make sure I get this perfectly correct all right it's not kumbaya by the fire it's tools for growth uh, the main thing that they push the message that they want everyone to know is that PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder equals PTG, which is post-traumatic growth. Um, clinical side of the house thinks that 30% from the bottom is the success rate. They have a non-clinical approach. Um, they believe vets aren't broken. We just need training. And um, it's they have uh, set up similar to a military and training environment, but nicer. Uh, founded by Ken Falk. And they want to encourage veterans to be curious, try new things, be present and teach you how to get back up. And they do want to clarify that they are not an emergency resource, uh, you know, not for uh, if you're having a severe crisis, but something to give you tools to help you unpack what you've been through. And Reyes told me uh, that this program saved his life. It's one week. It's in Georgia. Uh, Zach Brown's personal chef cooks for you. And uh, they put out a lot of good tools. And uh, the contact I have there is uh, Brent. And his number is area code 706 four nine zero five three eight seven and again that's the uh warrior path and you know because that's what you do is letting people know what's out there to get help and if they can help you please contact them they got slots open now and it's a great resource it's free yep.
0: so what i'm going to ask you to do is when we get off just send me the link and i'll put it in the show notes. Yes, sir. And guys, if you got anything out of this three-part series, please leave a comment on on Apple just so that people know that, you know, we're doing what we're supposed to do and helping provide hope for others. Bro, I want to say thank you for everything. I just love you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for giving me a platform. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm standing on the shoulders of giants here talking to a living legend in the making and I could not be any happier to be right here doing what we're doing and helping people. That is
0: great. All right, brother. Well, God bless. And thank you. Start working on that DVD. I think we should be able to raise some money for those families.
1: Let's get it done. I love you, brother. Love you.
0: Bye. Bye.